0: The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Well, good morning church, how you doing? Good to see you, it's a joy to be here. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name's Jared, I serve here as our discipleship and men's pastor. Today we are in the final week of our series, Identity, where we've been looking at lies of identity that we all too easily believe. We've covered three lies so far. I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what others think of me. And we've replaced these lies with the truth and the grace that are only found in Jesus. Our focus in scripture has been on the life and the writings of the apostle Paul because his story represents perhaps the most radical and influential identity shift in all of scripture, if not all of history. In week one, we looked at the moment that Jesus intervened in Paul's life on the road to Damascus. And when Paul met Jesus, everything changed about his identity. This moment was the moment where Jesus saved him and sent him to make disciples of all nations. Pat, Paul now located his identity in a new way, centered it in Christ. His self-understanding entirely changed. In fact, in his letter to the Galatians, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's identity entirely changed when he encountered Christ. Today, we're gonna look at this identity lie to conclude our series. I am my best or my worst moment. The lie that we are our best or our worst moment. So I thought I'd get started by just reading you a list of my best and my worst moments. Here we go. Now I'll spare you. Our world loves to identify people by their best or worst moment, by their successes or their failures by their wins or losses. We live in a competitive society that is fascinated by people who seem to just be crushing it at life. Yet we're also equally allured by people who seem to just be getting crushed by life and failure. There's this desire within us to celebrate and to elevate people who succeed. And there's also this judgmental obsession to cancel and ridicule people who fail. Whether it's success, or failure, a win, or a loss, a best moment, or a worst moment. If it's significant enough, we like to label it somebody's defining moment. Have you heard that phrase? Defining moment. Think about that. A defining moment. A moment that claims to have the ability to tell you who you are. In 1983, in a New York Times article, the phrase defining moment showed up for the first time, written by a man named Howell Rains. Today, this is a common phrase that we use. It was the team's defining moment. It's my defining moment, but in 1983, this phrase was not yet even recognized in our own dictionaries. Rains, the writer, said this. The phrase was in the political era that year. I heard it around. I decided to use it. No, I can't really claim it as my own. Humble guy. When asked how he would define the term since he used it in this article, he says this. A defining moment is a point at which the essential character of a person stands revealed. The essential character, defining moment. Merriam-Webster dictionary now puts it even more simply, a defining moment is the time that shows very clearly what something or someone is really about. A defining moment. Chip Heath says this in his book, The Power of Moments. Our lives are measured in moments. And defining moments are the ones that endure in our memories. And in many ways, this is true. Our lives are measured in moments. It's actually how we tell stories about our lives, the peak moments and the pits, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have these memories and it's how we tell stories. There are these moments that live on. And uh, I've got one of them, You know, a moment that I'm so glad is not a defining moment. It was the moment where I ran over my fiance with a four-wheeler. Yeah, not a good day. Not a good day is about, I don't know, 13 years ago or so, and we're up in Buffalo, New York, and I'm meeting for the first time her extended family aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. And uh, her uncle had a four-wheeler, and there were some woods behind his house where we could go drive. And so I had uh, Amber, my fiance, on the back of the four-wheeler, and we drive down the greenbelt, go to the woods, and we're having a blast. On our way back, this green belt um, had slopes on either side of it. And we're going underneath these big power lines, and my back tire catches on the slope. I end up overcorrecting, and we go straight into the brush and rough terrain. Amber is launched over me all the way in front, tumbles into the brush. I'm trying to get off the four wheeler, can't steer it quite well enough, and it runs over her leg and her arm. I lift her up, I drive her back to the backyard. You know, everyone's having a great summertime, barbecuing, grilling, swimming, laughing, and I can, man, like it was yesterday. It goes silent. Everybody turns and looks at me, and here I am holding Amber. She's covered in dirt, got blood on her knee, and she's injured, and I hear her uncle uh, in his New York accent go, what'd you do? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. Don't worry, though. It's not my defining moment, Uh, And Amber and I, 10 years later, you know we're doing great. We're doing great. I haven't ridden a four-wheeler in 10 years, so things are great. Things are great. There's no question whether we have these moments that are powerful and that endure in our memories and live on in our stories. The better question is this. Which moment has the defining power in our life? Which moment actually has the ability to define who we are? To cut straight to it, the enemy of our soul the devil wants to, us to believe that our essential character, who we really are, is defined by our worst or our best moments. And if we're not careful to guard our heart and trust the identity that is ours in Christ, given to us by our Maker, we will easily believe and live this lie. Jackie Hill Perry writes this It is the identity that we ascribe to God out of doubt or faith in His scriptures that will determine the identity we give ourselves and ultimately the life that we inevitably live. If he's creator, then we're created. If he's master, then we are servants. If he is love, then we are loved. If he is omnipotent, then we are not as powerful as we think. If he is omniscient, then there's nowhere to hide. And if he cannot lie, then his promises are all true. I wanna commend to you brothers and sisters that you are not your best or your worst moment. In the love of God, there is only one moment that has ultimate, authoritative, objective, eternal, true power, defining power over your life. And so today we're gonna look at Paul's worst moment, Paul's best moment, and Paul's defining moment. If you have your Bible, let's open up to Acts 7. We'll start in verse 57, Acts 7, 57, it'll be on the screen. If you need just a bit of context, we're jumping right into the end of a climactic moment where Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is about to be killed by the religious elite. So Stephen had just preached against the religious elite, had uh, rebuked Israel for being the one to kill its own Messiah. They didn't like that. They didn't like that he was calling Jesus God. He was committing blasphemy in their eyes. And so they're here going to kill Stephen. It says this, as they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, later called Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, "'Lord Jesus, receive my spirit.' Then he fell on his knees and cried out, "'Lord, do not hold this sin against them.'" Both of these phrases, this first Christian martyr Stephen, uh, are reminiscent of the same phrases Jesus used on the cross. When he said this, Stephen fell asleep, meaning death, and Saul approved of their killing him. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, But Saul began to destroy the church. This is Paul's worst moment. Paul here is in the wrong place, thinking the wrong thoughts, doing the wrong thing. And for so many of us, this is the structure of our worst moments. We're in the wrong place, thinking the wrong thoughts, doing the wrong things. Or maybe we're in the right place, but we're still thinking the wrong thoughts and doing the wrong things. Saul here is watching Stephen get killed for proclaiming Christ as Lord. And in his mind, he's thinking, this is right. I approve of this. And then from this place and from these thoughts, his identity in this moment, he goes to live on as one who's gonna destroy the church. I would argue that this is Paul's worst moment that he could have easily identified in. He was resisting the early movement of the gospel, he was resisting Christ as Lord. He was saying murder for that proclamation was right. And he went on to live as one who would destroy the church. Wrong place, wrong thoughts, wrong actions. For so many of us, this is the root of our worst moments that come to mind. The grip of shame that we feel because we're in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, thinking the wrong thoughts. But I'd like to look now at his best moment. And I know this is arguable. Like if we were to sit down, we could probably have a long conversation. This was the apostle Paul's best moment. I mean, he preached the gospel of King Jesus, the Messiah. He planted churches, he made disciples, he endured persecution, he confronted heresy, he contended for the multi-ethnic church, he wrote a majority of what we know as the New Testament, he shaped orthodox theology, he performed miracles, he had heavenly visions, and he even raised someone from the dead. Paul had a strong best moments playlist going on. But I'd argue there's one moment that stands out as his best. Let's flip to Acts 19, verse 11. It says this, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. I mean, I don't know about you. If I'd be like, hey, how's your relationship with God going lately? You're like, you know what? It's going pretty good. Uh, lately, Me and God have been tight. He's been using uh, using aprons that have touched me, Uh, even handkerchiefs. I haven't used them. They've just touched me. And now he's using them to heal people and exercise demons. Things are looking up and up with me and God. This is a good time in my life. I mean, think about that. It doesn't even say it was an apron that Paul used. Just an apron that touched him. An apron that touched him. Used to heal people and set people free. That's a pretty good moment to, to take stock in as your best. But it says in the text that God was doing extraordinary things through Paul. And this is where we often, in our best moments, miss that it's the grace of God in our life. And we, we take, take that moment and we make it our own to define ourselves. I am my best mom. I'm a success. I made the right investment. I got the job. I'm the CEO. Whatever it is, your best and shining moment. Paul here could have easily identified in it text says that God was doing extraordinary things in his life. He could have allowed these moments, the killing of Stephen and handkerchiefs and aprons being used to heal people to define him, but he didn't. He didn't wallow in his worsts and he didn't boast in his bests. Here's what he did boast in. It says this in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, "If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." The God and father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, ever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Paul here is saying, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Remember Damascus, Acts 9 and week 1, where he he encounters Christ and Jesus changes his life. His identity changes. He was gonna go to Damascus to persecute the church. Jesus saves him. And now he's in Damascus proclaiming Christ as Lord. And so King Aratas has wanted to get him out. And he's enlisting the people to go and arrest Paul, to kill Paul, to stop this Jesus as Lord movement. And Paul says this, if I'm gonna boast, I'm gonna boast in my weakness. But then he makes this note, I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall. Here's what one commentator says. In what must have been a daring exercise in Greco Roman antiquity, Paul takes the literary convention of boasting, common in that day, and he inverts it. He boasts in his folly, in his weakness, in his disappointment, and in his defeat. One of the Roman soldiers' most glorious achievements in battle, the Corona Morales, was awarded for being first over the wall of a city under siege. As Christ full, Paul boasts of being lowered down a wall as a fugitive. Paul's saying, I'm not my worst moment and I'm not my best moment. In fact, if I'm gonna boast in anything, I'm gonna boast that I'm weak. I'm weak before my savior. I'm so weak that I was lowered out of a wall the exact opposite of Roman honor. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. When I am not boasting in my best or wallowing in my Worse, letting them define me when I'm simply weak before my savior. That's when I'm free to love others as Christ has loved me. That's when I'm strong in the resurrection power of the spirit. That's when I'm living new creation dynamics here and now because I'm living in the truth of my identity. I'm just me. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is letting us in a little window to his heart where he says, I'm weak, not strong. He's strong. And so he encourages the church. He writes this in Romans 12:3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you: do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Sober judgment. I'm not my worst. I'm not my best. I'm not gonna think more highly of myself than I ought. I am who I am in Christ by the grace of God. His core identity, I've been crucified with him. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, it's by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul boasted in his weakness. He knew his identity was not in his worst or in his best. And if we allow our identity... To be in our best or our worst moments, we will be on a never-ending pendulum of pride and despair, just back and forth, pride and despair. Man, I'm awesome. Man, I am terrible. And Jesus wants to save you from both. He wants you to be secure, steadfast in his love. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 18, 9 to 14. To some who are confident of their own self-righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, people in their worst, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a 10th of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner." Jesus says, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. This Pharisee had swung so far over to identifying in his own self-righteousness that he was caught in the trap of pride. And even in prayer before his maker, he's praying a prayer of prideful self-righteousness. And Jesus contrasts that with the tax collector In his worst moment, just identifying in his weakness, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I don't have it all together. I'm actually more like the robbers, the evildoers and the adulterers than not. Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. And if we're not caught in the pendulum swing of pride, we will swing all the way back over to despair. And despair is where the enemy of your soul wants you to live where you are so focused on your sin that you are not seeing your savior. He wants you to stay there. And some of us, when we think about our worst moments, man, it gets us locked up on the inside. For some of us, our worst moments are the moments that we sinned in foolishness. And maybe for others, a more tender side is your worst moment in your mind is when someone sinned against you. And I wanna speak to you for a moment. If your worst moment that comes to mind is somebody else's sin against you, whether it was pain, trauma, or abuse, you are not that moment. You are not even that worst moment. For those of you who, maybe I have unknowingly, but even now the Spirit is convicting you, have identified in your own self-righteousness or your own success or your own best moments, however you wanna locate them, you're realizing, man, I have boasted in that and not in God. He doesn't hold it against you. He wants to set you free by drawing those up who are humiliated in their sin and by bringing those down who are boasting of their self-righteousness because the cross, the cross is the great equalizer. It's the moment that defines us. Psalm 34 says this. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Psalmist says, my boast is not in my bests; it's in the Lord. Let us magnify his name together. And for those of you whose faces are covered in shame, look to him and you will become radiant in the light of his glory, his grace, and his love for you. My soul doesn't wallow in the worst or boast in the best. It boasts only in God. And when I look to him, I am not condemned or ashamed. I'm made radiant with love, filled with the life and love of Jesus. I can live a life In freedom and in peace, shining a light in a dark world that's so confused about its identity. When we define ourselves by our best or worst moments, we will swing inevitably to pride or despair, self-righteousness or self-pity. And Jesus wants to set you free from both, just like he did for Paul. We've seen Paul's worst. We've seen Paul's best. Now let's look at Paul's defining moment says this in 1 Timothy 1, Paul's defining moment. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Let's say that together. Even though I was once. Can you say that with me? Even though I was once. Let's say it one more time. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, I was shown mercy. Can you say that with me? I was shown mercy. There's his moment. Paul's defining moment. Even though I was once all of these things, even though I have all of these worst moments in my life, there is one moment that defines me. The moment I was shown mercy Like the tax collector in prayer before God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Paul says, this was my moment that tells me who I am, the moment that my Messiah Jesus showed mercy on me. And he goes on to say, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, but the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This moment of mercy, of grace, of love and faith, this is the moment that Paul says was his defining moment. The one that has the ability, the authority, the objectivity and the truth and the power to define him. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I'm not my worst moment. I'm not my best moment, but I know this. I'm the worst sinner. I am the weakest man. I need Jesus to save me. and He showed me mercy. That's his identity. That's his moment. He says, for this reason, Christ Jesus would would display his immense patience in me, that we would look at Paul's life, his identity in Christ as an example, it says, for those who would believe, for you and I who would believe, if Jesus can show mercy to him, he can show mercy to me. If Jesus can change his identity, he can change mine. If Jesus can save him and send him, he can do that with me. And he ends this section with the doxology, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's defining moment. So to remind you, friends, brothers and sisters, you are not your worst and you are not your best. There is one moment that has the authority to define you. It's the one moment where Jesus is crucified on the cross for your sin and for mine, for our new life in him together. And Paul says, I too was crucified. And we might all say, I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live. My identity is at the cross in that one moment. John Newton, the writer of the beloved hymn Amazing Grace, says this I'm not what I ought to be. Ah, oh, how imperfect and deficient. I'm not even what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. You too, friends. Not what you ought to be, wish to be, or hope to be but we can heartily join with Paul by the grace of God. Even though I once was, I was shown mercy and it defines me. It is my identity. It is my identity. This sermon in many ways for me was really hard to prepare because I live this lie all too often. And uh, took prayer a lot this week to to battle through some of those, even insights the spirit was giving me in ways that I've lived that lie even recently. And so to close, I just wanna pray together over you. I'd love to end this series on identity in a prayer of of praise to God and, and blessing over our life and just maybe taking a moment to receive that identity afresh if you need to today so i'd love to pray friends if you would join me in a moment of prayer together father in jesus name we we say thank you that even though we once identified in our worst moments maybe even identified in our best moments that we were all shown mercy that you poured out grace and love and faith We thank you, God, that our identity is not in what we have, but in who has us. It's not in what we do, but in what's been done for us in Christ. It's not in what others think of me or us. It's in what you think. It's in your truth. And that it's not in our best or worst moment. It's in the moment you declared your love for us on the cross. And so, God, we go to the cross together now And we ask by your spirit that you would fill us afresh and renew our minds and center our identity in you, that we might truly live lives, set free as light in a dark world, that we would be so secure in our identity in Christ that we could truly bless and serve others in our own weakness. So God bless my friends, bless my brothers and sisters. May IVC be a place where we live full and free lives in our identity, in you. For those, Lord, today who came in wallowing in shame, I pray that you would lift them up. They would look to you and become radiant. For those, God, who have been boasting in their best, that they would now boast in the Lord. We have been crucified with Christ. Now it is Christ who lives in us. We live by faith and the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org.